the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. There is an idyllic formula for life, and I think we all know how generally it goes. You have school-age crushes, you fall in love around the age of 17 or so, then you're off to college by 18, you marry your high school sweetheart by 22, buy a home, raise a family, retire, you die, and someday you're buried by your surviving children. That's the idyllic formula. Of course, we know that Contrary to that, life often hands us something quite different. And when that formula falls out of order, it can create a tremendous amount of pain. It can cause people to be stumbling in their relationships, both spiritual as well as with their relationships on the horizontal plane. How do you go about recovering from life when it happens out of order? Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. And Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Craig. Your life kind of happened out of order, in a sense. It did. (laughs) Particularly so, and I think that every parent who's heard of these stories immediately gets that sort of quickening in their hearts that, oh, I never want that to happen to me, that sense that... We are supposed to be buried by our children. We're not supposed to bury our children. Mm -hmm. And yet that happened to you not once but twice in a relatively short period of time and then compounded with a divorce after many, many years of marriage. How did all that impact you in terms of your viewpoint on life and your relationship to God? Craig, really the reason I wrote the book is to support people who go through difficult times in their life and to let them know that there there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel so blessed by God to have a life that is filled with joy, regardless of the fact that I have had suffering. And I wanted to share that with people and give people hope and also support people who are going through something at the particular moment that they may have read the book or be reading the book. You describe your experience as feeling lonely and isolated, and it's funny because so oftentimes we'll go through the loss of a loved one, there will be a grieving process, there Mm -hmm. will be a funeral, people send cards, they send flowers, they telephone us, they send over the proverbial, the, the casserole for dinner and things of this sort, they try to give us a lot of attention, and yet there's a time when that activity slows down, and then suddenly you're left with that sense of the why questions uh-huh. and struggling through that, that tremendous sense of loss and that isolation. And it's amazing that you can be surrounded by people and yet because of that experience, you feel so terribly lonely and isolated. 
I, I think that the the loneliness I felt was more around my my marriage than around the deaths of the children. Mm. Oddly enough, uh, there was a sense of loneliness, even though I was married, because we weren't able to really communicate in the way that uh, I had hoped, or I think even he had hoped, and um, and it was a sense of of really needing to to find a way to either communicate or to separate. And um, I, I think I, I sometimes would say to myself that having to go through a divorce was almost more painful because it was a, really a dream that was just completely broken and I wasn't able to live out what I had hoped. I have always believed that the children are gifts from God. I have five children two of whom live with God in the spirit world and three of whom I see very often and who have grandchildren. And I feel blessed with the three that I have and I feel blessed with the two that are with God. But they are gods. I've been given them just for a short period of time. You have to look at it from a perspective of of the children being on loan from God. Exactly. And that's not to say that I didn't grieve very, very deeply when each of those children passed to God. You mentioned about that tremendous sense, though, of isolation and loneliness over the marriage. And it's interesting because as much as I point to um, how we will have a grieving process and and culture provides for Mm -hmm. uh, sympathy cards and acknowledgement of the loss and things of this sort, but that really doesn't happen around a divorce, does it? The death of a marriage, you don't don't get, people don't send you cards, you don't get flowers. I think people who have had to go through divorce really understand that no one would do that unless they absolutely had to that it's a it's a very painful thing to have to do and um i often i often think what if i didn't have to do that what if if the marriage were still there and yet it it wasn't and i have to acknowledge that it was just the way it was meant to be was it important for you to come to a point in life pamela where you grieved for the loss oh of i that? grieved deeply I grieved deeply even before uh, I I separated from my, my husband because I could see it coming, I could feel it coming, and there was some way that, you know, it's like a wave, we couldn't stop it. And um, I, I would cry myself to sleep because I knew that's what I was going to have to do. A lot of people go through that experience, be it the loss of a loved one that's very near and dear yes. or a marriage. and. Those past injuries, those old wounds, they continue as as untreated, gaping wounds that continue to fester and oftentimes hinder our spiritual progress and certainly hamper our relationship with God and with others. Did you find yourself going through that? What what set you on the spiritual journey that you took to sort of get reconnected with God in a deep way and to go looking for, for a lot of the answers that you sought? Well, when Maggie died, she was four months old. I really wasn't involved in spirituality. I went to church every week, and I had a relationship with God that I think was significant. But I didn't have any awareness. I hadn't done a lot of reading or studying. It wasn't until Sean died, and Sean died when he was 16. He took his own life. But at that point, I was studying theology, and I was much more aware. I also had experienced the death of a child, so I knew I wasn't going to die uh, with Maggie, I, I didn't know if I could continue living. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it was the pain was so great that how does one live 
you know, with that level of pain. And that had been a, a difficult childbirth, as I recall. It was from the a book. very difficult childbirth. Then yes. you went through postpartum depression, which I don't know at that time did we even really understand? Did we have a name for it? At no, that time? Uh, I, I, I don't think we did. Uh, I don't know. I think people did understand that there was some some sort of hormonal change that was happening that, that women who just gave birth would be sad. But with Maggie, it was the shock of having a, a C-section and 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 just I just was completely undone at her birth. She almost died at her birth. Yeah, I was that that must have been a particularly painful because it was a challenging childbirth. Yes, and and both of your lives were at risk at one point. Were they, they were not? yes. So to get through all of that and kind of have the we made it through. Right. She survived. I survived. Right. And then four months later. This huge black dark cloud rolls in on top That's of right. your life with sudden her, infant death, her loss. Yeah, that sets a lot of people into a downward spiral that some folks unfortunately never really recover from. That's right, and I do a lot of work with people who have lost children, and I don't know if I could say overcome, but I have regained my strength emotionally and. I've spent a lot of time with the pain, feeling the pain with God and asking for healing. Do you think that's important? And I ask that, Pamela, because so often our society is is created in a fashion or we're encouraged in a fashion to try to avoid pain or anesthetize pain. People go through different things in life and I can't handle it. So they reach to the pill bottle. They go to the booze. Maybe they begin overeating. There's something in there or become a workaholic. It's something in there that distracts them from going through the pain. And I'm reminded that Christ certainly never promised us that there would be no pain. In fact, we're reminded in Scripture that the rain falls in both the just and the unjust. And so that sense maybe of the importance of learning that we are capable in him and through him to go through the pain as opposed to going around it. That's exactly. And I think being a Christian, I could sit with Jesus and I could, he could understand me and I could sit with Mary. I'm raised Catholic, so Mary has been always important to me in my life. She, she knows what it's like to lose a child. She does know she? what it's like to lose a child. And so she became a, a great companion for me as I grieved the death of my children. And w- with Sean particularly, I, I think I had the wisdom to understand that if I didn't feel the pain and allow myself to really experience it, that I would never be to the other side. I, w- mm. I would have done something to anesthetize myself. And it becomes a... A major stumbling block, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't go through the grieving process, if you don't, in a sense, legitimize the pain, sometimes we want to hide it because we don't know how to handle it, or society is telling us to buck up, hang in there. Exactly. I bet there were people that said, well, now, Pamela, but you still have three other children. Oh. What about them? Yes. Is this somehow you're going to have that... Uh, <laughs> Or, you know, uh, slap on the forehead moment and say, oh, of course, what was I thinking? Right. People sometimes just don't really understand, do they? No, and they so don't. In, their, in their effort to try and be kind, they're actually heaping more more coals upon our heads unwittingly. Well, you, you said it in the beginning that uh, this losing a child for many people is their worst fear. And so they don't want to see you in pain. So, gosh, it's been a year. Aren't you okay? And it's uncomfortable for people to be with other people who are grieving, especially if you're not willing to feel your own pain. You don't want to be with people that are in pain. I have a lot of compassion for people who are grieving because I felt my pain. 
Not to say that I, there won't be another moment where, where I'll experience an aspect of my past that I need to spend time with God with, because we never know when we're finished. We never know when, when everything has been healed. Uh, but I, I do have compassion for people because I'm not afraid of pain. Pain has transformed me. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime. Now, Pamela, you touch on a very valid point that I want to have you sort of underscore, bold, and italicize for a moment. And that is that we never quite know when we're done with it all in the sense of that that healing process and that grieving process. We we tend sometimes to be take such a, a formula approach to this. A very close friend of mine who lost her husband two and a half, three years ago commented to me the other day that, you know, I'm really having a tough time because I'm not over it yet. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that statement and it occurred, I, I finally said to her, I said, you know, is this something you really want to get over? You were married for what, 45, almost 50 years? Is that something you want to get over? When you say get over, what what do you mean? You mean forget about your marriage and three quarters of your life? Are you saying that you want to forget all of the pain? And maybe part of the problem here is that our approach to pain is to avoid it or to be anesthetized from it instead of growing through it. And it seems like what you discovered is walking through Scripture, you realize that this is a process that we don't go around, but we have to go through, and that yes. we can actually grow through that pain, and that that process is not necessarily something that's instantaneous, like, you know, a cup of cold water in the microwave, and 30 seconds later, you've got boiling water, that it might be a lifetime. Absolutely. I think our life is spent um, growing and maturing in our spirituality and our awareness of who we are and who God is and how we are in relationship. You know, I, I, I really think that to understand that we are God's beloved, we have to walk the path. We can't, we just don't, uh, I don't know, there's some way, and I don't like to use the word we earn, the awareness of we are God's beloved, but we certainly have to reach deep into our souls to experience that's who we are. And if we have blocks there because we haven't felt the pain or the anger or the fear, then we aren't going to get to that place of joy and wonder and acceptance of God's love. Pamela Prime is with us today. The book, When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. Part of this challenge of managing pain and grief and loss tends to have a bit of family legacy or history to it, doesn't it? At one point in the book, you talk about um, sort of that history of having grown up and then later on in life carrying on that sense of that, you know, we don't trust, we don't feel, we don't tell. There are a lot of families that are like that. Yes. Uh, things that go on inside the family that might be a family secret. Uh, it can be something severe on that end or just simply a pattern in which we shut off feelings and emotions as a way of dealing with them. And, of course, we know that that ends up warping our relationships and, and certainly our relationship with God. 
what was the turning point for you to begin to say that, you know, that, that, that legacy, so to speak, that you had been raised with and it continued on in your life of that don't trust, don't feel, don't tell? At what point did you say, we need to short circuit this? I think the beginning was the death of Maggie because I had to feel those feelings. There was no way I could get out from underneath them. But I had another experience of being in the kitchen with my papers, getting ready to teach a CCD, a class on Christian education, to the sixth graders. And the topic was God's love. And and I sat there looking out the window, and I thought, how am I going to teach these children about God's love? And I, and I was looking at the flowers. It was spring, and the flowers were beautiful. And I was thinking, well, one way I could teach them was would just take them out into the, the fields and the gardens and talk about the beauty of nature and how God has given this all to us. And suddenly I had this awareness of God's love that was so overwhelming that I felt it in every cell of my body. Mm. And I went running to the Bible. At that point in my life, I don't think I didn't even have a Bible. Um, I I had one family Bible in the house, but I didn't have one that I read every day. And I grabbed this family Bible and I started pouring through it because I wanted to know who this God was that was loving me beyond anything I could possibly ever imagine. And I knew at that point that it wasn't just me, that it was everyone and everything in creation, that this love was just beyond anything that I possibly had ever experienced before. Our eyes sometimes get blinded to that, like the proverbial horse with the blinders on. We see just down that narrow yeah. tunnel of the road ahead of us. And you know, you would think of the example that you'd say, how do we demonstrate God's love when there's so much pain in the earth and there's so much suffering? Exactly. And to try to explain to a young child who could, as you're talking about, God is love and what we see demonstrated of God's love through the sacrifice of his son in scripture, who couldn't readily raise a hand and say, but wait a minute, how yeah. do you explain away the fact that my daddy was killed in the war mm-hmm. or mommy and daddy are no longer married or, you know, whatever a child might bring up as the pain that they're they're dealing with. And to, to be able to see that God's love transcends all of that. Yes. And that he loves us through those painful experiences. Walks with us, carries us. I mean, tears with us. And uh, I, I think sometimes we focus so much on what's wrong that we forget about focusing on what's exquisite and on, on God. Do we have to work hard? That passage in Scripture comes to mind, labor to enter into his rest. Do we have to work hard to labor into experiencing his joy? And I ask that question because some people may just want to plop themselves down in a room and say, okay, God, make it all happen. Yes. <laughs> this is a journey, isn't it? It definitely is a journey. You I mean, talk that... in the book about praying and fasting mm-hmm. and reading, and you even went back to school. You were studying uh, theology with the Jesuits. Yes. There's some effort at this, isn't there? Well, there is an effort, but there's also uh, there's also the experience of God causing that effort. Do you know there's some way in which I was called into prayer and called to study and called to search and called because the longing that I had in me that I was feeling was really God longing for me. Mm. And it was my response. And the deeper you go in, the deeper he draws you in. Well, yes, because because then you're available Mm. to God for those calls. So it's it's a really, it's a love relationship, really. And um, I think that lover wants all of us. (laughs) He does indeed, doesn't he? Yes. 
On this edition of Lifeline, Pamela Prime is with us today. We're going to take a brief time out, have her share some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. So Pamela, as we were talking just before the break, there is a longing of God's creation for him. And really there's also God who longs for us. And of course, the deeper we go in that longing, the deeper he draws us in. Um, yes. There's so much we see in Scripture about surrendering. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Christ ultimately modeled that, my goodness, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. And knowing the pain that he knew he would be facing, and yet to be able to have the stamina to say, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes. And even in that moment. Yes. Christ demonstrated to us what it means to fully surrender to God. And then watch as we see that story unfold from Gethsemane to then Golgotha and eventually on that hill hung on the tree. And then, of course, the good news of the resurrection on the third day. We see how God was there through all of that. Even at the moment when he utters, God, why have you forsaken me? We, Mm -hmm. We fully understand that, in fact, God had not forsaken him at any point. And maybe that's the big important message that that readers can extrapolate from your book that even though we go through these experiences, as you recount the story of losing Maggie, Sean to suicide at the age of 16, your marriage after 23 years, that God is still with us, even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. Yes. He hasn't forsaken us. And if we will reach out to him, he will reach back to us, won't he? Well, I think God is reaching out to us before we reach out to God. Yeah, you know, right. I think we're already yeah, yeah. in God's this lap. This is very true, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, God is waiting for us. Although God was I, never lost. No, God was never lost. <laughs> I, I remember just getting so so upset and so sad one day because we had moved and I was in a place that I had never lived before and, and a neighborhood that was very foreign to me. We moved from the from the East Coast. Was this the Tennessee experience? Yeah, to yeah. Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I, that's where I really was lonely and isolated and, and really depressed. Uh, yeah, from I got the East a, Coast or, or Walnut Creek on the other end and then Tennessee. That's a culture right. shock, isn't and, it? Yeah. And so I, I was like a fish out of water, really. And I remember just plunking myself down in this chair and, and just raising my eyes and, and my hands and saying, God, where are you? And I heard back, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you know? I was there so, all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And that was, that was another turning point. It was, you know, these, these moments where I realized, I would realize that I had this magnificent relationship, this magnificent love relationship. And, uh, you know, God was always poking at me and, and trying to wake me up to that. Those peaks on the uh, the Richter scale, like exactly. an earthquake, you know, they don't happen all the time. Right. But those earthquakes that sometimes can uh, jostle us, yes, they can be upsetting, like some of the events in life can be upsetting. Yeah. And yet they can also be those those shocking moments that will awaken 
a sense of the spiritual in us. That's right. Drive us back toward Scripture, back toward the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, when life is going well, what do you need God for? But it's in those moments when life is shaking us like an earthquake that we suddenly now can open our eyes and, and realize that it's more about than just the pain and the loss and the grieving and the trying to figure it out. It's about allowing God to love us in and through those negative experiences, the terrible things that most of the world works very hard to try to avoid or anesthetize the pain of, and experience God in the pain. Yeah. yeah. You know, Paul talked about knowing Christ in the power of the resurrection, and people like to put the period right there. Boom. I like that. Boy, the resurrection. Look at that. Raised from the dead. Can't beat that. Right. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we, we like that power of the resurrection part, but getting to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and realizing, as you mentioned earlier, that he knows, he can relate. He knows mm-hmm. what we're going through. Exactly. And in and through that, then we can find that sense of, of peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding. Yes. Yeah. And that certainly has been your experience, hasn't it? It really has been my experience. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I feel very blessed. I I find now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but majority of my prayer is a prayer of gratitude mm-hmm. because of my life. I just feel deeply blessed. I have a beautiful marriage and live in a beautiful part of the world. And I don't know. God is just blessing me. Let's talk about briefly the beautiful part of the world that you live in, down oh. in, in Twainheart. Um, you and your husband um, operate just a, a wonderful location there. You've had a retreat center for many, many years that I understand is now available. And boy, a family looking for a great place to get away to, or maybe um, even a religious organization that says, hey, we'd like to just get a, a, a small neat little retreat center in the middle of the spectacular uh, California Redwoods. You're about an hour north of Yosemite, so listeners that know the Twain Heart area immediately know we're talking about a little slice of heaven here on this side. Um, you've got a beautiful piece of property there. Tell us a bit I about do. it. Well, it's uh, it's five acres, and um, when Dave and I moved there, we started to recreate it. It had fallen into great disrepair, so we rebuilt the house uh, completely, really. I think there was one stick left by the time <laughs> the contractor got in and started ripping things out. Uh, and so we built a beautiful home. But then we built a tree house that's 35 feet above the ground. And uh, that was all architecturally designed and built by a, by a man from Maine who we brought to help us build this. And the community built it on the ground and we lifted it up with a crane. Uh, we've had a lot of fun on the property. The property has a lake that's all spring-fed, and it has a stream that goes through it. And then we have another guest house that's on the lake, that it floats on the lake. It has a float, and uh, these buildings are yurts. We have a writer's studio, and we also have another yurt that was really our chapel. And um, we did healing circles every month. And you've done a lot of writing there on the property, too, I have. I, I moved there to write, and so that's where I wrote the book. So really is is the kind of environment that can allow you to get away from the madness of uh, of all the, the busyness of the big city, so yes. to speak. And, and, you know, what better place if you're looking to reconnect with God or go deeper with God than yes. to get out there in his creation right. where you suddenly realize that sparrows cast shadows when the sun is in the right direction. 
um, and that there's other noise than the sound of passing fire engines and helicopters and the airport nearby Mm -hmm. and really be able to kind of just bask in the glory of that creation. Yes, it's beautiful. It's very peaceful. People say when they come on retreat, uh, we have three guest houses for retreats, they say uh, this place is magical or they say it's so peaceful. And we've had, I think that the place has just grown in terms of its sense. You know, when you go in a church, you feel really a beautiful energy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's because people pray there. And many, many people have come to the property and, and prayed and meditated and done retreats. So you feel that energy on the property, aside from the fact that the trees and the water are exquisite energetically and the birds and all the little animals that live there. And as beautiful as a, a chapel can be, it's still made by the hands of man, and yet you're you're in a chapel there that is literally created by the very hand of God himself. Exactly. Can't really compete with that, can no, you? No, you can't. Folks want to get more information, um, I'll send you to the website, twobearsdancing.org. That's twobearsdancing.org. And I want to thank Pamela Prime for dropping by and sharing today. It's been great to visit with you. Thank you, Craig. More information again on the web, twobearsdancing.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Imagine this. America Today, as we speak, has $100 billion dollars in student loan debt, $90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today are because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to money management? Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of you. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Now, I'm curious with your own family. um, What prompted you to decide and at what age that this was a conversation you needed to have with the kids? Well, that's a great question. Um, For the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the five money personalities, and we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand what what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so or 11-year-old. So we're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really 
starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And what we found between the ages of five and 12 is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into the teenage years. And between 13 and 17 is when we can, and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. And then what we found 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but you know, we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups. We're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those age in those different ages because we're really addressing three different major issues which every parent is facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote unquote, related to money or how they how they grow up viewing money, relating to money and, and uh, the role that money p- plays in their lives? Well, it's interesting. God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you going to go out to eat? Uh, or, or, bag, or brown bag your lunch? Are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee, or are you going to brew it at home? And our children are going to be and are starting at very young ages dealing with the same exact thing. And so what, has to, what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money, which we, have, we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit. We can we say with our whole heart we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities, and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations. Because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, but how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not re- rebel against them? Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents, and this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for, well, perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago, and that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Usually that's birds and the bees. The talk. Yeah, and 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 the birds and the bees talk. I would imagine for some parents might even come easier. And I and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason: having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life. Uh, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she on what it means to be a saver when, in fact, the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender? Well, I mean, that, that is a great point because what, 
what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're by chance, let's say maybe you're a, uh, you're a primary, we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver and your kid is a primary spender. You're always going to be making comments like, you know, well, that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes, or you need to have a savings plan. And part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different than your kids? And, and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. Ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because when you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you've failed, it, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents we're supposed to just you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children and they're just going to look at us and awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, my, I have a son who is a primary spender. And so we don't, use, we don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand. And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be on more opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker. So I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side. She is on the totally other side of the spectrum. She's a saver security seeker. And we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up. Like, perfect example, I was a competitive swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer. Swimming was a big part of my life. And my coach told me that I needed to get this new swimsuit. And my mom gave me, I mean, it was expensive. And my mom just gave me the biggest, made the biggest deal out of that. It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money. But to her it was because she's a saver and savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so really it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm. So there's a lot of, we, cannot, we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities is you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made, and you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is, you know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money, you know, we all, we all, not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about, like I said, a little bit every single day. And if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children, we're do, like I said, unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our, our relationships with our children. On Not today's edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, if it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life? We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues.